And our second Bible reading today is Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, which I will read now. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray for God to help us understand and apply what he has said in his word, the Bible. Heavenly Father, we learn from the first chapter of the Bible that when this world was formless and chaotic, you brought order to it by your word. Please, this morning, would you similarly bring order through your word to our often formless lives and our often chaotic hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Progressive Insurance has an ad campaign that you might have seen. It features a made-up expert called Dr. Rick. Dr. Rick's mission in life is to teach new homeowners how not to become like their parents. According to Dr. Rick, not becoming like your parents will mean not starting up cheerful conversations with people in an elevator. It will mean not treating your freezer like a time capsule. It will mean not printing the internet. It will mean not taking photos with the camera app on a tablet. It will mean not commenting on the price of popcorn when you go to the movies and it will mean not discussing your plan for leaving the game before you've arrived at the game. Each ad ends with the line, we can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can help you save when you bundle your insurance. That's the connection to insurance. Dr. Rick and Progressive Insurance seem to think that we won't want to become our parents. And it's true, there may be some things our parents do that we won't want to copy. But judging by today's Bible passage, the aim of a Christian family is for the younger generation to resemble the older generation, spiritually. In verse 4, fathers are told to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the same Lord, those fathers are following. So God is not like Dr. Rick from that ad campaign. God positively wants the children of Christian parents to become just like their parents, spiritually speaking. What we find in this passage is the principle of hand-me-down Christianity. Christian parents handing down the Christian faith through training and instruction to the next generation. 
God wants generation after generation of Christian children to become like their parents. It's worth reminding ourselves right away that Christian parents can't make their child a real Christian. The message of the Bible is that we each individually need to trust in Jesus, God's promised Saviour, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the penalty-paying death we deserve to die. It's only by personally trusting in Jesus that we receive new life through God's Spirit, new life that goes on forever. Parents don't give that new life. The Holy Spirit gives it when a person responds to Jesus with faith. But today's passage teaches us that Christian parents should raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as it says at the end of verse 4. And in verse 1, Paul addresses children directly, telling them to obey their parents in the Lord. That means Paul expects the children in Christian families to take Jesus seriously. He expects those words in the Lord to be meaningful to the children hearing his letter being read aloud in church. If we put verse 4 and verse 1 together, we have to conclude that when the children of Christian families don't put their trust in Jesus as Saviour, they are choosing to walk away from the faith they've been raised in. They're choosing to walk away from the faith they've been raised in. They're rejecting an inheritance of training and instruction that they've received. And in those situations, when those children have grown up, there's very little their parents can do other than pray, earnestly asking God to soften their children's hearts. And God in his mercy may do that. Some of us will remember Cole Smith, who was in our church family two or three years ago. Cole was raised in a Christian family, in the training and instruction of the Lord, but drifted away from the faith throughout his 20s, no longer attending church, no longer trusting in Christ, until God mercifully brought Cole back, gave Cole faith in Jesus. And we were privileged to witness that newfound faith when Cole joined us. It's God who gives the gift of faith. But parents are responsible in God's sight for raising their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what we'll be focusing on for the rest of the sermon, the hand-me-down Christianity that God wants his people to practice. If you're not a parent here today, Remember that you can be a spiritual parent to others through sharing your faith with someone who becomes a Christian or through helping a less mature believer become more firmly established in Christ. Timothy, that New Testament figure, Timothy was already a believer when he first met 
the Apostle Paul. He was already a disciple according to Acts 16 verse 1. But Paul then took Timothy under his wing and years later in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul describes Timothy as his true son in the faith. At the start of 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, my dear son. In other words, hand-me-down Christianity isn't just for natural families, it's for any Christian with eyes to see someone who they might be able to influence beneficially for Christ. Perhaps especially someone in the next generation. I think of a single woman named Karen, a friend of Betsy's and mine who lives in Pennsylvania. She doesn't have natural children, but she has many spiritual children who she's carefully nurtured in the faith, who she's kept in touch with down the years. Hand-me-down Christianity should be a guiding principle for all of us. We're going to look at three features of hand-me-down Christianity for the remainder of the sermon. And the first is that it's authoritative. Hand-me-down Christianity is authoritative. Children can only obey their parents as they're told to do in verse 1 if their parents exercise authority. Telling their children what to do so their children can then obey them. The word authoritative also fits verse 4, where, as we've seen, fathers are commanded to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It would be impossible to do that without frequently exercising authority. This week, I discovered that the American Psychological Association, the APA, divides parenting styles into three basic categories, and one of those categories is authoritative parenting. The APA is the largest organization of psychologists in America. It's a non-religious, academic organization. And I was pleased to find that the APA is enthusiastically in favor of authoritative parenting. Here's how the APA defines it. In this parenting style, the parents are nurturing, responsive, and supportive, yet set firm limits for their children. They attempt to control children's behavior by explaining rules, discussing and reasoning. They listen to a child's viewpoint, but don't always accept it. That's the APA's definition of authoritative parenting, and it seems perfectly compatible with what the Bible teaches about parenting. The APA goes on to talk about the results of this parenting style. It says, children raised with this style tend to be friendly, energetic, cheerful, self-reliant, self-controlled, curious, cooperative, and achievement-oriented. In contrast, the APA had nothing positive to say, absolutely nothing, about the outcomes of the other two parenting styles, permissive parenting and uninvolved parenting. Well, academic trends come and go, and who knows, the APA may change its mind about authoritative parenting in the future. But for now, it's encouraging, isn't it, to find this harmony between the APA's vision for parenting and the Bible's vision for parenting. 
Someone might say that authority involves law, and law doesn't save anyone. Faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. And so we mustn't give our children laws to keep. Instead, we should simply introduce them to Jesus and carry on introducing them to Jesus. One simple answer to that approach is to point to verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The Apostle Paul expects parents to be doing more than simply introducing their children to Jesus. He expects parents to be giving their children instructions to obey law. But there's a deeper answer to that seemingly Christian case, that seemingly Christian case for non-authoritative parenting. We could turn to verse 1, but there's also a deeper answer, which is that the Bible is only opposed to law when it's treated as the way to be saved. It's very true that law can't save, because we can't keep it perfectly in God's sight. So when we treat the law as our saviour, the law as the way to become righteous and pleasing to God and enter into his presence forever, when we treat the law like that, what do we find? We find it's a harsh slave driver that's never willing to let us go free because we can never keep it perfectly. We can never keep it satisfactorily in God's sight. So it's absolutely right that we shouldn't look to the law as our saviour, but that's not the Bible's last word on law. Far from it. Law reveals God's character. That's a good use of the law. It teaches us more about him, what he's like. And law reveals our sin to us, which otherwise we might remain unaware of. And as we see our sin, we cry out to God for his rescue through Jesus, his forgiveness. It's also a good use of the law. And another good use of biblical law, the moral rights and wrongs we find in the Bible, is that it teaches all people, Christians and non-Christians, children and adults, how best to live. And we need to learn how best to live. Imagine a Christian political party comes to power and it announces an end to all law. Because law can't save. Only faith in Jesus can save. We'd instinctively know that Christian political party had made a dreadful mistake. We wouldn't need to wait to see the crime figures rocket. And what's true of a nation is true of a home. Law is necessary. It's good and necessary. If my nine-month-old son Abel could speak, he would tell you that law is necessary. He would explain to you that law protects him from the rough treatment he would otherwise get from his big brother. Solly loves Abel, but sometimes he gets far too rough with him. So Abel would tell you, if he could speak, that law is good and necessary in the home. He'd say, law protects me. I like it. 
One reason why authoritative parenting has an image problem is because behavior modification has an image problem, I think. Our culture takes the view that it's wrong to use rewards and punishments to modify behavior because it's better for children to choose to do what's right from the heart instead of just seeking a reward or avoiding a punishment. And we can agree that it's best when children choose to do the right thing from their heart because it's the right thing to do. That's best. But the biblical doctrine of sin means we can't rely on anyone's heart. No one is good except God alone, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. That means we can't rely on the human heart to modify its own behavior. And since human behavior very often needs to be modified, like Solly's rough treatment of Abel, rewards and punishments are extremely useful and necessary things in society and in the home. It may be best for a drunk person to choose not to drive because driving under the influence of alcohol is wrong and foolish and dangerous. But if a drunk person chooses not to drive simply because he doesn't want to be pulled over by the police and arrested, I'll take that. I'll take that if it keeps the drunk person off the road. If someone desires to rob a bank but never puts that desire into action simply because of fear of punishment, I'll take that. And it's similar in the home. We can agree that it's best for children to do the right thing because it's the right thing and because they want to please Jesus. But if instead their behavior will only be modified by rewards or punishment, so be it. Modified behavior is better than unmodified sin. That's what we need to grasp. In children and adults, in Christians and non-Christians, modified behavior is better than unmodified sin. That's why we shouldn't be embarrassed by Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, which says, Whoever spares the rod hates the child, but whoever loves his son is careful to discipline him. Whoever spares the rod hates the child, but whoever loves his child is careful to discipline him. In that verse, the rod stands for punishment that really registers as punishment. It's a verse that recognizes that sitting your child down and explaining what's right and what's wrong won't always be enough. Sometimes punishment will be necessary, punishment motivated by love. As the proverb says, it's more loving, much more loving to punish a child than to let a child continue in unmodified sin. You might have heard it said that Christian parents shouldn't use the word punishment or even think in terms of punishment or retribution. And that's because the argument goes, Christian parenting is about discipline and training. It's future focused rather than focused on a past offense. But 
That's misguided. It misses the point that punishment is part of discipline, part of training. It's a vital component in the training toolkit. The Bible teaches us that sometimes a punishment that really registers as punishment is the only thing that will train a child not to sin. Whoever spares the rod hates his child, but whoever loves his child is careful to discipline him. In that verse, discipline, training, parallels the rod. And the rod stands for a punishment that really registers as punishment. Punishment is a component of discipline. We should press on to the second feature of hand-me-down Christianity. Hand-me-down Christianity is attentive. It's attentive. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We've been thinking about commands and law being necessary in society and necessary in the home. And here we find a command for fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers have so much power over a child's experience of life. And children, with their God-given sense of justice, know, they know when a father has acted unjustly or unlovingly. They know when a promise has been broken. They know when they've been treated cruelly. They know when they've been harshly denied for no good reason something they dearly want. Verse 4 commands fathers not to provoke that kind of anger. Verse 4 puts Christian fathers on alert so that they don't provoke it. It's a command that fuels attentiveness because a father who doesn't take a close interest in his child won't notice if his child has been provoked to anger. But a father who takes God's command seriously will watch his child with great attentiveness to make sure he's not provoking his child to anger. Some children do make it very obvious that they're angry, but others bottle it up inside and keep it to themselves. A father who's seeking to obey Ephesians 6 verse 4 will have to get to know his children well to make sure he's not provoking them to anger. It's a command that stirs up loving attentiveness. There's a well-known piece of parenting advice you might have heard which is that quantity time is more important than quality time. When you first hear it, it sounds like it's the wrong, the wrong way around. Surely quality time, fun, fizzy, exciting shared experience matters more than sheer quantity of time, just being there a lot. But that line is the right way around. Quantity time is more important than quality time because attentiveness is a safeguard that helps the father avoid provoking his child to anger. And attentiveness takes time. It takes quantity time to really get to know your child. The pastor and writer Ray Ortland has often written about his late father, how much he misses him, how much he loved him, how much he learned from him. Ray wrote one widely shared article titled 10 Unforgettable Lessons on fatherhood, and all of those lessons were learned from his own father. 
Here's the first line of the first lesson. My dad was a busy pastor, but he was never too busy for me. Ray Ortland's father was an attentive father. He was never too busy to lose track of his son. And so if he did ever provoke his son to anger, he would have known about that and he would have been able to do something about it. Attentiveness is a feature of hand-me-down Christianity because it's a safeguard against unnoticed and unaddressed anger in a child, the kind of anger that can embitter a child and drive a child away from the faith. We've seen that hand-me-down Christianity is authoritative, it's attentive, and lastly, it's advantageous. Hand-me-down Christianity is advantageous. That's the point Paul gets across in verses 2 and 3. Paul begins by quoting from the Ten Commandments, honour your father and mother. Then he points out that of the Ten Commandments, that one is the first that comes with a promise attached. And he goes on to quote the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. In its Old Testament context, its original context, that was a promise to do with living in the land of Israel. If the younger generation obeyed what their parents taught them about their God and his ways, the people would stay in the land. They wouldn't be exiled as a punishment for rejecting their God. In our period of salvation history, the promise of long life in the land should be understood as a promise of eternal life in the world to come. Elsewhere, Paul, the same Paul who's written the book of Ephesians, he speaks elsewhere in the book of Romans about this world's future. He says in Romans chapter 8 that creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. This earth has a glorious future. And if the children Paul is speaking to obey their parents, they will live forever in that future glorified creation. Paul isn't saying that children can earn salvation through obedience. He can't be saying that because he'd be contradicting what he said earlier in this same letter in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So Paul isn't saying that children can earn salvation through obedience. What is he saying? Well, we need to remember that Ephesians is a letter that would have been read aloud in church. The children hearing it would have been brought to church by their Christian parents. How will they inherit the faith of their parents? The faith by which they'll live forever in the land. They'll inherit that faith if they stick with the program. If they keep doing what their Christian parents are telling them to do, such as praying, going to church, repenting, and most importantly of all, trusting in Jesus for salvation. That's something Christian parents tell their children to do. By sticking with that parental program, 
Children will have a good life because their parents will teach them God's good ways and they'll have a long life in the land, eternal life, in God's liberated creation. Well, let's finish by spending just a little time thinking about God's parenting of us. God's parenting of us. In the Bible, God is described as not just the Father, but our Father. That's how the Lord's Prayer begins, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven. And in the Bible, we find parallels between God's parenting of us and regular human parenting. Jesus says in the Sermon, of, on, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's a direct parallel between human parenting and divine parenting of us. So it, it's right for us to find parallels in this passage between the teaching that we're seeing here on human parenting and God's parenting of us. His parenting is similarly authoritative. He gives us commands, knowing they are for our good. We should trustingly obey him like a Christian child who has learnt to trust that her parents know what is good for her. And God's parenting of us is also attentive. We're known by him. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Psalm 139. Because God knows us, because he loves us so much that he gave his only son for our salvation, we can trust that God is never trying to provoke us to anger. He's never doing with us what he tells Christian fathers not to do. If there's a prayer you've been praying that God does not seem to be answering, he's not doing that to provoke you. He has good reasons, possibly mysterious reasons, but good reasons for withholding whatever you're asking for. He's not trying to provoke you. God's parenting is authoritative, attentive. He knows us, he loves us. And finally, God's parenting of us is advantageous. It is for our eternal good and our good in this life. He wants things to go well with you forever. His parenting of us is advantageous. We can look to him at all times as our heavenly father, who dearly loves us and wants what is best for us in his sight. Let's pray to our Heavenly Father now. Father in heaven, 
Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being attentive to us. We're glad you know all about us. And we're so glad that you love us and want what is best for us, even to the extent of sending your dearly loved Son to the cross so that we might be forgiven through his death there. Father, we pray that we would come to you as our Heavenly Father who loves us, trusting in your goodness. Help us to obey your commands. Help us to trust you and not to think that you're provoking us. And help us, we pray, to keep in view just how advantageous your loving parenting is. We pray for those of us who are parents, natural parents, that you would help us in that task. And we pray that all of us, Heavenly Father, would have eyes to see how we can be spiritual parents for the next generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.